The following content is explicit. It's Monday, May 21st, 2018. From Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. To Hawaii we go, where officials are warning residents to watch out for lava. Lava. Do we need the officials with the official lava warning? The lava watch? The lava threat level indicator? I hope it's always that orange, bright, glowing orange. It's lava. It's about as threatening as as lava. Lava seems to be the touchstone, not literally, I hope, for other things that are unquestionably dangerous. There is no wiggle room with lava. When you were a kid and you stood on the couch and you didn't want to touch the floor, what was the floor made of? Lava. Or maybe sharks. Are we ever going to see anyone in the news say, well, the lava was approaching us, but we thought we could just go up and, you know, pet it. No one thinks your lava is going to be the molten hot bad lava. No, we all think that. That's, that's what all lava is like. It's very, very hot. It's really quite hot. It might be slow, but it is lava. Even if Hawaiians are blasé about threats since that incoming missile thing turned out to be a whoopsie-doo, well, there's lava coming at you. That cannot be good. This isn't like cholesterol or ladybugs. There is no good lava. Lava, it's slow, it's steady, and it's quite hot. It is the quintessential question of not if, but when. And the when might be for quite a while. I mean, lava's not going to sneak up on you. You do have time. But that really, the time, the temporal element, it's really the only subjective part of lava. When lava does come, you just got to get out. That said... There is something else that's bothering me about how the media is treating this lava. It's referenced in this report from Reuters. They also warned of lays formed when lava hits the ocean to create hydrochloric acid and steam embedded with fine glass particles. Did you hear that? Lays? Lays? Here's NPR expounding, as NPR is wont to do. Many are saying it sounds like a war zone. At a state park, the lava entered the ocean at two points, producing a hazardous mixture of hydrochloric acid, steam, and fine glass shards known as lava haze or lays. Lava is lava plus haze. You know, H-A-Z-E? No, Hawaii. No, 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 no. You cannot name this deadly molten shard confection Lay's. You already have Lay's, and it is fundamental to your tourism industry. And your tourism industry is your bread and butter, or your bread and poi, to be locally accurate. Yes, tourists get off the plane from the mainland, and Lay's are put around their neck. Wait, no. We've been hearing about Lay's, these deadly shards. Get them away from my neck. Look, if any idiot mainlander stays away because of the Lay's, Lay's thing, you have shot yourself in the foot. Or as the locals say, poured lava down your trousers. At first, I wanted to hold my tongue. Who am I to weigh in on Hawaiian? What a language, 12 letters. You know, there's sure to be a lot of homonyms in a language with 12 letters. But Lay's has nothing to do with Lay's. Lay's, the lava shard one, is just a portmanteau of lava and haze. It is an entirely Western word. And by the way, it is weird to think of the U.S. as Western and Hawaii is not when Hawaii is to the west of the U.S. But whatever, we're talking about Lay's. You need to expunge Lay's, Hawaii. Expunge it, if not the actual harmful plumes of acid and gas, then at least get rid of the word you're using to describe it. Your next insurance broker's convention could depend on it. On the show today, I spiel about what would have stopped this last shooting in Texas. I will give away the answer right here. Probably nothing. So what? That is the real topic of the spiel. But first, 
In this polarized time, let's get into what led to the great ideological sorting. Sam Rosenfeld is here to talk about the history and the political science behind the polarizers. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Technology and politics are moving closer and closer together. And I think it is important uh, to take a look at the power and influence that Amazon has. And these big tech companies aren't just shaping debate, they're shaping the way we live and work. This was a huge breach of trust. People come to Facebook every day and they depend upon us to protect their data. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. We're the hosts of If Then, Slate's new podcast that decodes the heavy tech news flying out of Washington, Silicon Valley, and beyond. Every week, we bring you up to speed on everything from the Russian hacking scandal to the machines that help decide your local voting maps. Find If Then wherever you get your podcasts. FDR was, without a doubt, the most consequential president of the last hundred years. He was elected four times, so that's an advantage. But the man solved a depression, won a war, the two are related, and of course laid the seeds for the great society. Perhaps if you want to call it that, the seeds of uh, the welfare state, some of the safety nets we still enjoy today. There were some things he couldn't do. He couldn't pack the courts. He had trouble passing his executive reorganization bill. And also, he and his Republican opponent, Wendell Wilkie, never got to hatch their plan, which was to essentially make the political parties ideologically pure. Wilkie was more or less a liberal Republican. Uh, FDR was a liberal Democrat. And their idea was if they could form one super party, the conservative elements of each of the other parties would fall away. Now, that never happened, but sorting did happen. And the result is written about by Sam Rosenfeld in his new book, The Polarizers. Hello, Sam. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. So the subtitle of The Polarizers is The Postwar Architects of Our Partisan Era. There I laid out a scenario wherein there really would have been architects to architects that we could point to. But in reading your book, I wonder, is architects the right word? Was it really architected or did it happen with some nudging and some pushing, but also just some natural evolving? Well, I would say... Certainly there are no puppet masters occupying the kind of commanding heights of the parties like you saw with Roosevelt trying to hatch a scheme with with Wendell Wilkie in 1944. On the other hand, I definitely think and emphasize the work of conscious actors. There was articulated on both the right and left a critique, a small-D democratic critique of the mid-century party system and an argument for making the parties more ideologically defined and more ideologically distinct as as solving some of those problems. Right. E.E. Schatzschneider is the kind of leader of this group in the early post-war era. Schatzschneider and his ilk were tasked by the American Political Science Association uh, in the late 1940s to form this committee on political parties to kind of study the party system in the United States and offer prescriptions for how to make it better. And they put out a report in 1950 called Toward a More Responsible Two-Party System, advocated a a series of reforms to how Congress should work, to how the uh, national committees and the state and local parties should work to kind of bring this differentiation about. 
so the era that I'm talking about with uh, liberal Republicans, mm-hmm. with the Roosevelt Democrats, was this so different from how the parties were organized since there were since since the Civil War when there were Republicans and Democrats and when the Republicans essentially took the place of the Whigs? The 19th century, which is called by a lot of historians and political scientists as the party period in American history, where political parties absolutely structured and defined American politics and policymaking in a way they they, they never have ever since. Um, you didn't have real ideological clashes over welfare state, the role of the government in the economy, culture, etc. The things that they were organized around had more to do with kind of patronage, with uh, distributive economic development policy that they would dole out to their party network or the other other guy's party network. What you get over the course of the 20th century, and really this is why you're right to highlight how important Roosevelt was and the New Deal was, is work by ideological factions on both parties to essentially remake their parties in their own image. And conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats are shared partners in pursuing a project in which the parties would end up reflecting a clash of those ideologies. Um, If we went back to the time when Wilkie and FDR were talking about their deal and simulated a million futures. Yes, I just saw Dr. Strange do this in The Avengers. How, <laughs> how often would we get a situation like we do now with these ideologically sorted parties, would you say? That's a good question. I think I'm enough of a, of a determinist to say that there were underlying changes in society that were making less and less tenable party formations that didn't have to do with policy and ideology. At the same time, There's nothing inevitable about the combinations of issue positions that we call ideology, that we call Mm -hmm. liberalism and conservatism, looking the way they ended up doing. Right. Like being against abortion and being against the welfare state, we call that conservatism. But in a lot of countries, they don't. Even in like evangelical communities, they don't always. It just happens to be a blending of two issues that have some similarities but have some differences. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, putting together pro-life pro-gun, anti-tax. Those are issue positions, particularly those culture ones, that happened very recently. Um, yes. these, these were the work of brokers and uh, activists on the right in the 1970s and 1980s and similar things happening on, on the left. So, uh, so in the multiple universes that you, you could see, you could potentially envision different kinds and combinations of issues getting put together by the, the architects I discussed. And the 2016 election – or particularly Trump's capture of the Republican nomination in the first place, really underscored the degree to which there is electoral potential at any given point, and certainly at this point in the, on the Republican side, to take unorthodox positions. I mean, it's easy to forget now because he abandoned all of it in government, but <laughs> in addition to the wall, in addition to everything else that we associate with Trumpism. In the primaries, he was talking about he's the only Republican who's going to protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. He's going to uh, invest a billion dollars in infrastructure. He's going to raise taxes on hedge funders. This was all— yeah. Bragged about being pro-gay, essentially. Yeah. He hasn't been pro-gay, but, you know, bragged about it. Right. Um, yeah. And so there is definitely electoral 
potential for different kinds of combinations of issue positions and, and sort of ideological clustering. Once he's president, Donald Trump didn't do any of this because there was no organized faction within his party, within his administration, within the, the broader <laughs> within his ears. movement. <laughs> yeah, that wanted any of this or had any leverage to, to push any of those unorthodox positions. So we've gotten a much more orthodox conservative Republican and regressive economic agenda, which is just to say that it takes a lot of work and sustained effort to build those kinds of potential alternative worlds. So the state that we're in now, which is not a great state, if you look at public perception of Congress, if you look at just the f- how many bills are passed, how much each Congress gets things done. I mean, we could differ about how sorry a state it is. It ain't great. How much of that is attributable to exactly what you're talking about, the polarization? Uh, I, I think a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, those are only occasional periods when you get uniform party control of government. And even during those periods when there's productive things happening, the tenor of partisan conflict guarantees that half the country hates what's happening and thinks it's destroying the country at any point. Um, That last point I think is really important because I think a case can be made that the actual accomplishments under an ideologically sorted party system aren't that bad. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, there was a great recession, but the seeds of that were pretty bipartisan. Both parties wanted deregulation. There were some exceptions, but it was bipartisan. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of partisanship in terms of uh, the stimulus package and trying to correct it, but correct it we did. And if you look at the underlying... GDP, and if you look at even things like some measures of wages, things have actually been improving in America, and things are a lot better in America than in Europe. So this is a case can be made, uh, a, a gentle case, that the parties have provided. But the thing that it's done is what you said. I mean, you said that the reason when the parties were an ideological muddle, people didn't know who to blame. So we've created a system that perfectly tells you who to blame. We've created a perfect boogeyman that could map onto any bad situation and add that to the fact that we're living in this world of social media, which are these kind of perfect anxiety generation machines. I think that might be the big problem with uh, the polarization. It just makes us feel worse. I think that's right. And I truly have no solution to that. (laughs) Well, the last time a political scientist offered a solution, look what we got. (laughs) <laughs> right, sure, right. So a little bit of humility is 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 well earned. But I I do think the best one can hope for is get elected with your party and in the first 2 years get as much as you think would be good for the country accomplished and then uh expect a wave midterm election that throws your party out of power <laughs> in the other side and then sort of grind it out for the next two to six years and and kind of rinse and repeat. So I know America invented uh, modern democracy, but are there other, so, so we can't go back in time for lessons really, but what about lessons from throughout the world? Let's go laterally. Are there any other countries that have been through this and come out the other end for good or ill? In general, you know, what I try and tell students of American politics is just to remind them that other democratic political systems, in fact, much more commonly found in other democratic political systems than ours, work completely differently. Uh, Parliamentary systems, you never sort of by definition see the kind of 
crisis potential we've been witnessing in the last few years of, you know, almost defaulting on the debt, government shutting down every once in a while. Um, that kind of thing can't happen when you're giving one coalition or one party uh, sort of uniform control and responsibility for governance until there's another election. Uh, at the same time, it's no great shakes over there when there's a kind of mass disaffection from the major center-right and center-left parties in those countries, particularly the center-left parties, and you get fragmentation into new, more extreme uh, splinter parties. So there's problems to, to go around in the democratic world. And here is my last question, Sam. The book talks about the polarization that happened and we have talked about and the book talks about the uh, political scientists of the time were advocating for that uh, didn't turn out as well as they would have liked. What is going on today? What is a popular movement within the political science community that there are many champions of that you worry could have some unintended consequences if uh, anyone would actually listen to the political scientists? Oh, that's a good question. I don't want to make enemies. Um, I don't have tenure. Um, (laughs) Here, I'll punt by saying, most political scientists are skeptical of panaceas that are out there. So sometimes they're supported by political scientists that are basically kind of anti-party. Regardless of your kind of substantive views, uh, I think political scientists see value, even in this day and age of, of hyperpartisanship and, and dysfunction, in uh, strong parties that can organize conflict in, in democratic societies and and offer offers simple choices to voters and the tendency to mistake the symptoms for the disease and attempt to limit or roll back parties' influence in organizing politics and governance is something that were it to make further advances, I don't think would end up curing what ails us. And I think most political scientists would agree with me. Oh, see, I agree with that too. But we just talked about when the political scientists were wrong. Now, (laughs) shaking my faith. Yeah. Sam Rosenfeld is the author of The Polarizers, Post-War Architects of Our Partisan Era. He is a professor at, well, I I don't want to give you full professorship. How do we describe your? Assistant, assistant professor. Very good. He is an assistant professor (laughs) at Colgate. Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you. This was great. And now the spiel. You definitely heard the news of the killing of 10 at Santa Fe High School in Santa Fe, Texas. And you may have heard that state's lieutenant governor explain how that happened. This is from ABC's This Week. George, should we be surprised in this nation? We have devalued life, whether it's through abortion, whether it's the breakup of families, through violent movies, and particularly violent video games, which now outsell movies and and music. There, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick blamed the shooting on abortion and video games. Japan plays more video games per capita than the United States and has a shooting rate of effectively zero. I would say guns have more to do with shooting than video games. The abortion rate in America has plunged, absolutely plunged in the exact same time period that school shootings have risen quite a bit. Say guns might have something to do with that. So those are a couple of bad examples, terrible explanations, really, about the why 
the school shootings happened. What about solutions? Here again, this time on CNN State of the Union, is Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. But had teachers been armed, there was a teacher next door, a Marine, uh, who saw what was going on, slammed the door, locked his door, protected his students. Some feel had he been able to carry a gun, he may have been able to stop that shooter had it been his choice. So in Texas, teachers are armed. In Santa Fe High School, teachers can be armed if they so choose. This teacher, who the lieutenant governor is talking about, chose not to be armed. I would guess he knows what's right for him and his classroom and his school. But the lieutenant governor's solution is for that teacher who did not want to be armed to have been armed. I don't understand how that's a solution. I think that that's wishful thinking. Or is the lieutenant governor going beyond concealed carry to compelled carry? Look, it is easy for me to pick on the worst aspects of diagnosis and so-called solutions of the mm, most thick within the guns' rights crowd. But they do have a good argument, the guns' right people. They say that none of the solutions that are often talked about would have worked to have stopped this shooting. I agree. For instance, I favor a ban on AR-15-type weapons. AR-15 wasn't used. I support so-called red flag laws. The shooter didn't really raise any red flags. I'm against large magazine sizes. That doesn't seem to be the case. Not with a handgun, not with a shotgun, sawed-off shotgun. I'm for better mental health screening. Again, doesn't seem to be the case here. Even the argument about hardening the target, which I subscribe to, though I don't think it's the primary way to stop these shootings. Target seemed pretty hard. This school won awards for how hard the target was. So here's what I would say. Drunk driving should be legislated against. That said, most crashes... There is no inebriated person involved. So should we not legislate against drunk driving? Should we not think of it as a societal problem? Should we point to all the instances where someone died and no one was drunk and say, there, you don't need drunk driving laws? And in the case of shootings, I do think a lot of my solutions will have a tangible effect, even on situations with no AR-15 or a large magazine size or a crazy kid. I believe that one school shooting tends to beget the next, and that goes all the way back to Columbine. If it weren't for AR-15s, if it wasn't for high-capacity magazines, the kind used in Las Vegas and Sandy Hook and Parkland, this shooter possibly wouldn't have been as drawn to this act. It is worth considering the social contagion of school shootings being less contagious. If you ban the worst guns, I do think you minimize the worst shootings. There are exceptions. Virginia Tech, that was done with a handgun. This one, sawed-off shotgun, which is illegal, by the way. And if the father sawed it off, I think he should be arrested. If the kid sawed it off, there's nothing you could do. This one also done with a handgun. But generally, less deadly weapons equals fewer dead. You know, around Parkland, there was a shooting in Kentucky and a shooting in Maryland. I doubt that those two shootings inspired other shooters because the death toll was two and zero and they didn't get much attention. And the reason the death toll was two and zero, probably a lot of reasons, but I got to think one of the reasons was that a handgun was used, not an AR-15 in either case. If that's the only example of school shootings, I believe we lower the appeal of this act to crazy boys without fully formed frontal cortices and with a lot of rage. It is worth trying. Now, there is another solution that some in the media nowadays, mostly on the right, have been saying, which is don't name the shooter. Don't give him attention. You will notice I don't. I haven't. I don't think I've named 
any or many, maybe one or two shooters in the history of the gist, and that's just because I had to. I do so because I think it's a best practice not to name the shooter, and a little bit because of Kant's categorical imperative. That's, that's a fine solution, or a plausible attempt at a solution, for a world that does not exist. These days, gatekeepers can't keep the gates. The biggest problem with reporting on shootings isn't even accurately naming or not naming the shooter. It's tamping down crazy conspiracies that the victims are only pretending. We can't even do that. We're going to pass a media-wide ban on naming the shooting, given the fact that the media is everyone with a Twitter account. So don't name the shooter or don't name him beyond initial reports. That is a fine practice for a journalism organization that wants to act ethically. It is an impractical practice for a country telling itself that it is acting ethically. It's just not a real-world solution. It's definitely now a real-world talking point, however. But I say if we're going to entertain the unreal, why would our fantasy be enforceable obscurity on school shooters as opposed to ending the shootings altogether. If we're indulging in a dream world, let's dream a little bigger. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname, who is warning about the dangerous toxic molds that have beset the homes of park employees in Orlando. These malignant houses, or so-called death mouses, are the scourge of Orlando. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, would like you to know that if you visit the Grand Canyon, there are archaeological digs happening all the time, happening rather quickly. Dubbed rapid burrows, they are everywhere. Again, the Grand Canyon is replete with rapid burrows. Rapid burrows, be forewarned. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is here with a fun tip. Visiting the Black Hills of South Dakota, be sure to purchase photographic slides for your Viewmaster taken from the air. Do not buy the much more prevalent ones taken from the ground. Though it is hard to figure out which is which before you commit to buying these slides, but again, he warns, the Mount Rushmore landslides are unavoidable. Watch out for Mount Rushmore landslides, but hope for the best. The gist, we went to Yosemite. The feller who was lecturing about Old Faithful, this guy was so boring. He was very polite, but they were all so boring. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, I'm not done, ma'am. Horribly stultifying. The deadly guide sirs are everywhere in Yosemite. Deadly guide sirs, watch out for them when you go to Yosemite. Upuru, depuru, dupuru. Upon further review, thanks for listening.